This is what God's Word says to us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to Him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it out on His head as He reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray for our time in God's Word. Father, I pray with the psalmist writes that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord. Father, I've spent time in this passage. We have spent time as a church walking through Matthew. Father, help us now to understand it and help us to respond to it. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a number of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis through his series, The, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, books like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe have just in recent years been made into movies and have caught many people's attention. Uh, you may not be familiar with some of his other works, though. He has many of them. And, and one of my favorite is a short fictional book Lewis wrote called The Great Divorce. He's not talking about a divorce and marriage. He's talking essentially about the great divorce, the great separation between God and man and man's sin. What Lewis describes in that book is a, an interesting perspective. He talks about a, a group of people who are essentially in hell. They don't call it hell. They may not recognize it as that, but that's essentially the portrait he gives. And this group of people are allowed the opportunity to take a bus ride from hell into heaven. And, and he captures then the dialogue they have with individuals in heaven. One particular dialogue in that is of a man who pictures himself a, a theologian and a, an intellectual, an academic, and yet he is one who is there in Hades. And when he goes to heaven, he has an encounter with someone he knew back on earth. In this encounter, this man from heaven invites him to come into God's kingdom, to come over the mountain range into God's celestial kingdom. But this man refuses. And the reason he refuses is because he talks about how he wants to get back to where he was before. You see, Lewis doesn't give the portrait of hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks more about this desolate place where people roam off into isolation. But this man feels like he can gather people together. Uh, he has a little study and they talk about faith. And he's excited to get back so he can present a paper to them. The subject of that paper being this. He feels that Christianity would have been a much greater religion 
had Jesus not died. Talks about how Jesus was crucified at the very beginning of His earthly ministry. And He tells this man in heaven how, how great the faith would have grown to be. How, how Jesus would have matured in His perspectives had He not been cut short in His life. What Lewis is pointing to in this fictional book is, is the way that we and our foolishness often view God. He's pointing to how so many of us miss out on understanding the Gospel. Understanding the crucifixion. You see, sometimes we view the events that we began to read about today and we'll continue in Matthew 26-28 through 28th reading and, and we look at them sort of like Jesus was cut down. Uh, uh, Jesus was betrayed. All these bad things happen to Jesus and yet we need to step back and see that all these events, everything that happened from the birth of Christ to the resurrection, it was all part of God's sovereign plan. What we're going to address today is that. We're going to talk about that the tension we see in this passage and in other passages, the tension that exists between God's sovereignty, His complete control of all things, and yet our responsibility, our free will, our actions, and, and how those things, there's a tension there in the Scripture. And then we're also going to look at a question. The question that comes in all our lives. The question of how do we respond and how will we respond when God in His sovereign plan doesn't do what we expected? When He doesn't do what we wanted Him to do, how will we respond to that? And we'll look at that by looking at the way a couple of people in this passage respond. But let's begin now by going back to the beginning of the passage and, and looking at this point. The point being that you can rest, I can rest, in the sovereign plan of God. We see at the beginning of Matthew 26, Matthew is making sure the reader understands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the events that are about to transpire didn't just come because of the will of man, didn't just come because of the evil desires of man, but they came because they were the plan of God. Jesus here tells the disciples that after two days, the Passover is coming. And at that Passover, that He will be crucified. That He will be resurrected. If you've been with us through Matthew, you know that Jesus has been sharing this teaching with the disciples all along. Uh, it began by Him telling them first that He was going to be crucified, but He always would tell them the resurrection was coming. He would give them that hope. And the second time when He told them that, He mentioned not only would He be crucified and resurrected, but He said He would be betrayed. The third time He taught the disciples, what we saw just a few chapters ago, is, is not only that He would be betrayed, not only that He would be crucified and resurrected, but He shares details like, that the Gentiles will mock Him and, and flog Him and, and will openly ridicule Him. Jesus continues to kind of unpack the events that are coming, giving a little bit more detail. And here, the additional detail He gives is that this is going to happen in two days. Imagine how shocking this would be to the disciples. The disciples who were with Jesus as He entered into Jerusalem. And as all those people... All the masses, those pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the Passover began to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King is coming. The masses were looking for what the disciples were looking for. They were looking for a Messiah who would reign politically, who would, who would lead the Jewish people here and now. And so you can see why they may have ignored or not quite understood Jesus' teaching about death and about resurrection. And yet, He continues to reiterate this so that they might understand, and so that we today might understand that the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, these events, 
were not just something that God came up with along the way. These were part of God's plan from the very beginning. You go back to the book of Genesis. And what you see in Genesis, we've talked about this many times, is you see creation and you see perfection. You see Adam and Eve in that garden, uh, given the responsibility to care for it. Adam given the responsibility to name the animals, to, to cultivate the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And yet, God says to them, you can eat of anything in this garden, but this one tree. He is reminding them that they, they are not God. That He is God. He is ultimately sovereign and in control. They have been given control of this area. And yet you know in Genesis 3 that they rebel and they sin. That they try to hide from God. They try to cover themselves. In that very first glimpse we see of the fall of man, we see the Gospel. We see the promise of a Redeemer who will come. God in giving the curse down to Adam and Eve and to the enemy He says to Eve, he says to the woman, I am going to raise up one from you who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first portrait we see of the Gospel. And we see in that passage that Adam understands this. Adam responds to this because after the curse is handed down, you see there in Genesis that Adam then turns and names his wife. We had a discussion about this in uh, one of our evening Bible studies a number of months ago about the timing of this, about how interesting it is that that Adam has already named all the animals, but it's it's after the fall, it's after the curse, that he turns to his wife Eve, names her Eve, the mother of all living things, and about within that, you see Adam is trusting in a promise. Adam is trusting in what God said, that from this woman would come an heir who would defeat the enemy. And so as he looks to her and names her, He names her according to that promise. Eve, the mother of all living. From her, one will come who will destroy the enemy. He is looking forward. And God points him forward because if you continue to read, you see there, after the curse is handed down, that God looks at Adam and Eve and shows them that that their attempts to cover their sin was completely insufficient. He has to sacrifice an animal and cover them with the skins of that animal. We know from the Old Testament that the sacrifice of animals, it can't appease the wrath of God. God's just giving us a glimpse. He's he's looking forward to a sacrifice that would come. And now we're at that point in Matthew 26 where we see that sacrifice is about to happen. And, And as we look there, it's so important, Christian, that we understand this isn't something that God just had to come up with along the way. This is part of the sovereign plan of God. But we see in this what we see throughout the Scripture And what we see in our lives is that while God is sovereign and He has a plan, that that, that does not relieve us of our responsibility of sin. That does not take away our culpability for our actions in what we do. And we see that as we continue in this passage. And and the point I've placed in your notes is this, that you and I cannot ignore then our responsibility for sin. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the one. God is sovereign. Jesus says this is going to happen. And then notice what takes place next as he places in his gospel the chief priests and the elders now, they're gathering together and they're plotting to destroy Jesus. Uh, This is not the first time we've seen this. We've we've seen all through Matthew's gospel uh, the religious leaders of the day, uh, the, the high priests of the day, they want to destroy Christ. They want to destroy him because he is taking their power away. In fact, as we read through the other Gospel accounts, we see specifically in John's account more of the interaction that takes place between this high priest Caiaphas 
and the other high priests, or the other uh, elders and, and rulers and chief priests. See, Caiaphas was someone who had been a, and would be a high priest for quite a long time. Uh, if you look at history, you know that from about 40 years before the birth of Christ, up until about 67 A.D., shortly before the temple was destroyed, during that hundred years, there were close to 30 different high priests in the temple. They were appointed and they were deposed of by the Roman officials. In that time period, in all those high priests, Caiaphas was high priest for almost 18 years. What that tells us is he was probably quite a politician. He was one who knew how to keep power. And we see that in this passage and in the other Gospels, specifically in John's Gospel, where it includes this dialogue between Caiaphas and the chief priests. The chief priests are, are troubled. They're trying to figure out, what do we do? Because if we let Jesus continue, He's going to take away all our power, and we're going to lose everybody. And then Caiaphas makes this statement. On his end, thinking he's cunning and, and wise, he says, well, better that we take the life of one man then we lose a nation. John tells us that he didn't even realize fully what he was saying. You know, he was thinking that from his selfish perspective. Better that we take Jesus out so we can have control. And yet, what do we know of the gospel? One man gave his life for all. One man was ransomed for many. Caiaphas wasn't trying to share the gospel. In his sin, he was trying to keep power. But even there you see this tension. God has a sovereign plan and He is in control. And in that plan, He is using Caiaphas and these chief priests and these other sinful people. And they are fully responsible for their sin. You see, that's the tension we see throughout Scripture. This tension that, that God is sovereign, He is in control. And yet in that control, we see men and we see sin. And So how, how does that work? The Scripture tells us God doesn't cause us to sin. And, and we wrestle with things like, well, if God's sovereign and, and in control, then do I have free will? And how does that work? And yet we see that free will in the Scripture. But what we see in this passage and in many passages is that there, there's a real tension there. And, and we need to be careful that we don't ignore one in order to, to, to accept the other, and that we don't ignore this one to accept this one, that we recognize in the Scripture there's a tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We see it in this passage. Uh, you continue on in the Scripture and you see it in Acts chapter 2 where Peter is there at Pentecost. And you know at Pentecost, he, he looks out to the crowds and he's speaking of Jesus. And what does he say about Jesus' crucifixion? He says, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He is saying the cross was God's plan. The crucifixion was God's plan. God is responsible for the cross. And in the very same sentence, Peter looks at that crowd. He says, this Jesus you crucified and you killed. He's saying that that crowd is 100% responsible. God is sovereign and we are responsible. There's that tension there. You can go back to Genesis. You see it there. In Genesis chapter 50, if you know the story of Genesis and what takes place, you know about Joseph. You know about how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. How he was betrayed by his brothers. Through all the calamity and suffering in his life though, God had His hand on Joseph. To the point at the end of Joseph's life, He uses Joseph to protect the people of Israel. To preserve a nation. But there's this encounter there in Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph's brothers come to him and their father has now died and they're quite certain that Joseph's going to kill them now because of what they did to him. 
And yet Joseph looks at them, and if you'll remember what he said, he said, the reason I am where I am is because of the evil you meant against me. You did this to me. You are responsible. But in that same verse, he says, but God meant it for good. God is in control. God is sovereign over all things. There's that tension there. God is sovereignly in control, and we are responsible. And Matthew here is putting these things together that that we might understand that more. And friends, we need to understand that. See, most of us don't struggle with affirming the sovereignty of God when good things happen. You get the promotion at work. Oh, all praise be to Jesus on this one. You know, Jesus got me that promotion. You watch the the Olympics or any other type of awards and and you'll usually see somebody get up and oh, thank God for this, praise Jesus for this. We, We affirm God and His sovereignty and His control when things are going good. But what about when things aren't going good? What about when instead of sending out that, that birth announcement, we have to let our friends know that we didn't leave the hospital with our baby? What about instead of celebrating that promotion at, at work with our family, we have to sit down at the dinner table and say, Mommy or Daddy lost their job today? Well, what about instead of celebrating a relationship or something good in our life, we have to deal with suffering and hardship and calamity? And what about when it seems one comes after the other comes after the other? We need to understand that God is sovereign over all things. That many times these things are brought about because of our sin and we're responsible for that sin. There's consequence of that sin. and There's other times when we don't understand and we're not going to understand. But God's Word tells us this, that these are light and momentary afflictions and that we have the hope of eternity that lies ahead for us. That God has not abandoned us or left us. Think of what it is, what we see here of Christ, our Savior, our King. Here is Christ. He's been ridiculed by these Pharisees. He's going to stand before them. He's going to be judged by them, the One who is the judge. And yet He does all these things understanding what? It's the will of God that must prevail. He says on bended knee, not my will, but your will, O Lord, be done. And that's where we need to be as well. And we get a beautiful glimpse here in the passage of of two people who then have to deal with this. Two people who have to respond to when God in His sovereign plan does something they didn't expect. And so we're going to look to that in hopes that we can better understand in our own lives how it is we need to respond. Because as you see in the last point I've put in your notes there, The question comes down to this, when God's plan is not what you or I expected, how will we respond? We see a glimpse of two different people here. The first one Matthew gives us is Mary, the sister of Martha. What Matthew does in his Gospel, oftentimes he doesn't place things chronologically. John does more of that. He, He places things according to their type. And so here he tells us about something that happened in Bethany. When Jesus was in Bethany, we know that happened right before the triumphal entry. And, and we know from the other Gospel accounts, while it doesn't name who it is here, uh, that it is Mary, the sister of Martha, who anoints Jesus. Uh, we know as we look through the Gospels, this is the second time that Jesus has had an experience like this where He's anointed by oil from a woman. In this case, we know it's Mary, Martha's sister. Think about what you know of Mary and Martha. If you'll remember Mary and Martha from the other Gospel accounts, they are the sisters of Lazarus. 
they have that encounter with Jesus where Jesus is there in their home and, and Martha has the complaint, Lord, Lord, I, I'm doing all this to get ready and, and here's my sister and all she's doing is sitting at your feet. Yeah, that, that's normally where we see Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it's important we know uh, this is not Mary just taking a nap or Mary trying to get out of chores. Uh, in the Scripture, in Jesus' day, to sit at someone's feet was symbolic of learning from them, uh, being discipled by them. And so to sit at one's feet was to learn from them. And that's what Mary does. She sits at the feet of Jesus to learn from Him. We see that in the first encounter they have. We see that when Lazarus is dead. Jesus comes, what does Mary do? She drops down to the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, had you been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we often read that and think she's mad at Jesus, but in the context in the text, we see that, that Mary is one of the first ones to affirm the sovereignty of God and how Jesus can do anything. And she's saying, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And so, Lord, now what? And what does Jesus do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And here again, we see Mary doing what? In Matthew's Gospel, it says she anoints Jesus' head with oil. We know from the other Gospel accounts, she also anoints His feet with oil. We see Mary here at the feet of Jesus. Now, now back up and just think about this for a second. You've got people following Christ, most of whom we know in the Scripture, were following Him with the thought that He would become King here and now. Uh, he would solve all their problems here and now. He would, he would, he would overrule the Roman authorities and He would make the Jewish people reign. And that's why they're following Him. And that's why at the triumphal entry, when, when Jesus is coming in, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King is coming. That's what they were expecting. And yet we see in this passage, Jesus is continuing to teach them that's not what's going to happen. And so Mary would have been among many of Jesus' followers who had to deal with this issue, deal with when... God's not doing what we thought He was going to do. Jesus, you're not, you're not doing what we thought you were going to do, Jesus. That's a question or concern or thought that's probably very familiar to, to many of us today. You look at your own life and you can probably put your finger on an event or many events where, where God did not do what you wanted Him to do. He didn't perform like you wanted Him to perform. He didn't provide like you wanted Him to provide. And you're left at that moment going, Lord, why? What? And you can respond in many ways. But notice how Mary responds. When Jesus doesn't do what He and others expected, uh, they expected Him to do, she simply falls to His feet. She anoints Him with oil. She prepares Him for burial. The disciples are critical of this. They say, what a waste. She just dumped out that oil. We know from the other Gospel accounts that this was worth about 300 denarii, worth about a year's wages. Uh, in that day, there weren't a lot of things to, to have of wealth and value. This, this is likely for Mary, essentially. This is her savings account. This is her retirement. This is her inheritance. This is what she will pass down to her children. This, this expensive oil worth a year's wages. And yet, what does she do? She breaks it and she puts it on Jesus. She gives the most valuable thing she has for the one whose feet she has sat at. She is honoring Him. She is bringing glory to Him. And she is teaching you and I, Christian, how we need to respond when God doesn't do what we wanted Him to do. When He doesn't perform like we expected Him to perform. We still are called in those moments to worship Christ. It doesn't mean we're going to understand what's going on. I've had far too many encounters, counseling sessions, appointments, visits to hospitals where the news was bad and where people want to know why. 
And, and I don't have the answer why. But I'm called back to what the Scripture says. What? What are we to do? We are to worship Christ. And we're to understand that many people don't in those moments. And we see an example of one that I want to close with this morning. We see it here with Judas. See, Judas, we know from John's account as well that as the disciples are grumbling about how much this, this was worth, this perfume, this ointment, Judas specifically says, it's worth about 300 denarii. He, he says this, John says, not because he cared about the poor. He says this, John says, because he was a thief. Because he would steal from the money bag. He was in charge of the money bag. He would take from it. And so Judas is likely thinking, we could sell this for a lot of money, and yeah, we'll use it for the poor, but I will get my share. We view Judas a certain way. We need to understand maybe Judas didn't see himself as a thief. Maybe Judas, like some of us, felt like he got, hadn't gotten his fair share. Maybe Judas, like some of us, felt like he had to take things into his own hands. That, that God wasn't providing like he wanted. So he, he had to do what he needed to do in order to get what he felt he deserved. And yet we see how that played out for Judas. Because when Jesus doesn't affirm that concern, but basically says, guys, you need to understand what she's doing is more important. <laughs> she's the only one who really gets it here. Judas is indignant. And we don't know exactly what goes through his mind, but we can kind of piece together what's happening in the Gospel. It's in that moment that Judas then decides he's going to betray Christ. And what does he do? He, he goes to those who wanted to plot, who wanted to kill Jesus. He goes to those chief priests and he says, what will you give me if I deliver to him, to you? And, and how ironic, he, he's offered 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament was the price of a slave. If you were responsible, if one of your animals was responsible in some sort of accident of killing someone's slave, you had to pay that person 30 pieces of silver. Just to put this in comparison, it's not worth far, not, not, not worth hardly what the perfume was worth. It's worth far less. It's not a very big amount in this day. And yet, here's this amount you would pay for a slave that Judas says he'll take to betray Christ. Christ who would give his life as a ransom for all of us. The question for us this Lord's Day, friends, is how, how will we respond? How, how do these people respond? When, when God didn't do what they thought He was going to do, Mary bows and worships Christ. When God didn't do what Judas thought He was going to do, He takes it into His own hands. How do you respond when God doesn't do what you think? When God's sovereign plan isn't your plan. When you don't get what you think you deserve. When, when you don't get what you think you're owed. At that point, do you take things into your own hands? Do you walk towards sin, which the Scripture tells us so easily entices us and entangles us and yet is only pleasurable for a season? Or in those moments, do you recommit, God, I will trust You and I will follow You no matter what. If you find yourself going more that way of Judas and less that way of Mary, then you have an opportunity this morning that Judas doesn't have. Judas is dead in a grave. We'll read more in the coming months about what happens to him, but you have an opportunity today. You have an opportunity today to repent and place your faith in Christ. And we want to invite you to do that as we draw now into a time of invitation. If you'll go ahead and stand with me. And as you stand, let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. I pray now that You would use it in our lives, that You would draw us to faith and repentance. 
And Lord, that we would respond to the calling of Your Spirit. And we pray for these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.